The Israelites are coming to worship their God in the temple as if everything is just fine, but outside the temple they are worshiping other gods, and some were even adopting the horrifying Canaanite practice of child sacrifice. And so Jeremiah makes his very unpopular announcement. The God of Israel is coming in judgment. He's going to destroy his own temple and punish Israel by sending an enemy from the north. This is an army that God would allow to conquer Jerusalem, and as you read on you discover he's talking about the great empire of Babylon. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There are no bad surprises with God. Right? God doesn't just like smite people out of nowhere. Uh, right? We don't have to puzzle out God's will like it's a mystery. He makes it very plainly known. Right? You can find it all in here. And you don't actually need me to stand up here and teach you how to interpret Scripture. You can read it for yourself and you can understand all you need to know from the plain sense of it. All I do is give you a little bit of an edge. Now this matters. God wants to save people, not destroy them. God wants to undo the evil that has infested the whole world. And the whole story of Scripture is God working to undo the damage that human evil has done. And the way that God does all this, the means by which he does it, is through the power of his word. His word in Scripture, his word embodied in Jesus, and his word spoken through his prophets. But the one thing that is always true is that what he wants is always clear. The path to salvation is always clear. It is not the case that we don't know what to do or that we don't understand what God wants from us. Now, there might be like very specific times, specific situations where you're not quite sure what you want to do but in the, or what God wants you to do. But in the grand scheme of things, it's always clear. The problem is that our pride gets in the way. Our lack of faith gets in the way. We will allow our lives to collapse around us because we don't really believe that God can and will save us from ourselves. We will choose to fall over the cliff rather than be dragged up by our pants. That's my new favorite example, by the way. I'm making t-shirts. And so here we are in Jeremiah chapter 36, verses 1 through 8. And this is going to be, um, this is essentially the last things that Jeremiah is going to say to people before Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. It may be 
that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch son of Neriah and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord. So you are to go. And on a day of fasting in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read words, the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against his people. And Baruch the son of Neriah did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. So think about this for a second. Jeremiah, the prophet, is banned from the temple. He's not allowed in the temple because they don't like what he's saying, which is, of course, part of the problem. So his scribe, who's writing down all his words, his job is going to be to go to the temple in Jeremiah's place and read out all the things that Jeremiah has said, which takes a lot of bravery because Jeremiah has said some things people really don't like. He's going to read them publicly in the temple to the people who were there to worship, to the priests, to the king, all of it. Now, the exile is going to happen in two waves. First, King Jehoiakim and all his nobles, all the priests, all the social elite are going to be carried off into exile, and a puppet government is going to be installed in their place. And ten years later, the rest of the people will be carried off when the puppet government tries to rebel against Babylon. And what Jeremiah is doing is he's giving the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, a warning about the destruction that is about to happen. God is trying to get the people to turn back to him. He spent 150 years doing that. He spent 150 years sending his prophets to preach his word to his people, trying to get them to turn themselves around. And what Jehoiakim is about to do with this scroll is going to embody the people's response as a whole. So in verse 20, So they went into the court to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and he read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting, was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. And as Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. So the king's sitting by his fire, listening to the scroll being read to him. And after every couple of lines, he just takes a knife and cuts off that part of the scroll and burns it. He's acting like, a, like an angry teenager. Now just imagine, I mean, the, the, the arrogance. This is a really stunning image. This is 
This is the king sitting on David's throne. He is a descendant of David. He is a direct ancestor of Jesus. His father, Josiah, had instituted sweeping reforms to try and get the people to turn back. And here he is, hearing the word of the Lord, hearing words from God himself, warning you that if you don't change your ways, you and your entire nation are going to be destroyed. All your sons will be killed. And he just burns them in the fire like their love letters from an ex-girlfriend. It continues in verse 37. 27. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll which Jehoiakim the king of Judah has burned. And concerning Jehoiakim the king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord. You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, He shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, but they would not hear. So if you thought God was angry before, he's really mad now. If you're Jehoiakim, he's watched you burn the scroll. He's watched you disregard and disrespect his word. And you've heard for your entire life, the entire time that you've been king, that if you don't turn from your idols and return to the worship of the one true God, you will lose everything and still you won't listen. It's one of those things that it's kind of hard for us to to really wrap our heads around. It seems so unbelievably foolish and stubborn. But the thing is, people in the ancient world took a really long time to come around to the idea that there was only one God. And in fact, the Jewish people don't seem to have ever truly gotten that concept until they were living in exile. So they think there are gods everywhere. And they believe that each God lives in a specific place on earth. To come into a new land and not worship the God who lived there was unthinkable, terrifying, That is why Israel struggles so much with idolatry. They don't trust that their God is the only real one. They don't trust that their God is stronger than the gods of the Canaanites. To worship the God of Israel and only the God of Israel requires a lot of faith. But it's not as if God hasn't given them plenty of reasons to have that faith, right? God gave them the land. God defeated their enemies time and time and time again. Over and over, God has demonstrated in powerful and tangible ways that he is all they need. But fear is a powerful thing. In their world, everyone knows that each land has its own gods. Those gods live in that land, they rule that land, and if you don't honor them, you're in deep trouble. So he burns the scroll 
because he doesn't believe what God is saying. He thinks the only way he's got any hope of standing against Babylon is to get all the gods on his side. He's not going to listen to the word because he doesn't really believe it's true. But he's not the only one. The whole nation is doing that. And so ten years later, here's the fruit of all that faithlessness in chapter 39. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Nergal Sarezer of Samgar of Nebuchadnezzar, the Rabsaris, Nergal-Sarezer the Rabmag, with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon, when Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and they went towards the Arabah, that's the Dead Sea. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. And the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people. They broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. It's, it's a brutal story. There's no getting around it. They lose the promised land. And it's worth pointing out, they never get it back again. They get to live there again but it's not their promised holy land anymore. God takes it away. The deal was they can have the land as long as they're faithful. They weren't faithful, they lose the land. They don't listen, they have to leave. They get to come back and live there again, but they never get to rule it again on their own. Until now. And even then, there's some issues with that, right? God's word gave them the land. God's word called them to repentance, and when they didn't listen, God's word took the land away because they broke the covenant. And you'll notice when you read through the rest of the Bible, that particular covenant is never reestablished. Until Jesus comes, there is no covenant between these people and their God. But it's unfair to call God harsh or, or, or judgmental or angry. They lived in the promised land for nearly 700 years and they were only faithful to that covenant for maybe a hundred of those. Maybe. For the vast majority of that time, they were unfaithful. And for the final 150 years, there is a constant stream of prophets preaching repentance to them. 
after centuries of unfaithfulness, God still spends over a century trying to fix things, trying to call them back to repentance, trying to get them to honor the covenant they made with him so that he doesn't have to let them go to destruction. See, that's who God is. That's what God does. He's so much more patient with us than we are with anyone. God knows we will fail. God knows we will be unfaithful. And still he chases after us. And still he gives us second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and on and on chances. God stops at nothing to redeem us. And God never condemns us either. We condemn ourselves. We reject God's redemption. The story of the people of Israel going into exile is not a story of God condemning them. It's, their, it's them making their own choices which cause their own condemnation. Right up to the very end, God offers them a way out. And they don't take it. And we do the same thing in our own lives. Because we don't really believe what he's offering. We don't really believe that he is all we need. My daughter has gotten it into her head that Band-Aids can heal anything. Right? So anytime she gets hurt, even if she just like bumps her knee on the wall or something, she wants a Band-Aid. Right? And it doesn't, I can sit there and explain to her all I want that you don't need the Band-Aid if you're not bleeding. It doesn't matter. She doesn't believe me. She wants the Band-Aid. And I give it to her because I'm weak. And if somehow she manages to convince herself that a Band-Aid won't help, she has to go to the hospital. And again, no amount of explaining to her that you don't need to go to the hospital just because you bumped your knee on the table. doesn't matter. She wants to go to the hospital. If she can't sleep, she asks for medicine. Right? No, you don't need this to sleep. Just go to sleep. doesn't work. She doesn't believe what I'm telling her. And we're just like that. We, we know what we need, and it's not God. If only we had a, a bigger house, more money, a newer car, a better job, different friends, a better physique, a more interesting pastor. <laughs> but when we get those things, all the things that we think we need, all the things that we think will solve our problems, we find that actually nothing has changed. Because in actuality, God is it. God is what we need. All of our problems are, at the root, spiritual problems. Every last one of them. Jesus really is the answer to everything. And that's like the Sunday school get-out-of-jail-free card, right? You answer Jesus, you get the question right. But it's true. Jesus is actually the answer to all of our problems because all of our problems are, at the root, a spiritual problem. And John's Gospel tells us that Jesus is the Word, the Word made flesh. And the Word has the power to do anything. The Word can save us from ourselves even if we are already falling off the cliff. Thanks be to God. Amen.